This is Exchanges to Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're joined by David Costin, the one and only, the firm's chief U.S. equity strategist. And David will be talking about his latest research on how investors are viewing the outlook for stocks, which sectors are recovering faster than others, and his latest sets of estimates on where he thinks the S&P index will end up for the year 2020. Welcome back to the program, David. Thanks, Jake. Nice to be here. So we had you on back in January, which seems like eons ago. At the time, your team's outlook was that the S&P would close the year at 3,400. What's your latest estimate in the light of everything that's happened since then? Well, it has indeed been a remarkable six months. In fact, on February 19th, almost exactly six months ago, the S&P 500 reached an all-time high. And in the interim, of course, the fastest and steepest bear market we've had in, uh, in history. In 22 days, the market fell by more than 30%. But remarkably, it's rallied back by 50% since the trough. And so we have a market that today trades at exactly the same level as it did in late February, an all-time high. And so if we think about diagnostically why that was the case, the Fed definitely is uh, one of the key reasons. And the second would be Congress both acting in concert, had huge impact on rally in the market. And analytically, is probably more of interest to listeners here, is what do we think about the market if we compare that at the previous peak with today? And today, we're at the same level. It's basically been a situation where there's less profits, but a higher valuation on those profits. And that is, in a reductive sense, really what's taking place. So to put some numbers on it, the two-year-ahead earnings expectations. And that's what the market's been focusing on for much of this year. Two years ahead, those level of profits have come down by around 10%, and the PE multiples increased by around 10%. The market today trades around 19 times two-year forward estimates, which is high relative to history. But the reason that the PE expansion, the valuation expansion has taken place is that interest rates have dropped by one percentage point. So that's sort of the narrative or the diagnostic uh, nature of what's happened and why the market today trades at the same level as it had in the past peak. Now, looking ahead, our forecast is 3,600 for the S&P 500. So actually, we are a higher level of forecast. We had been around 3,400 at the start of the year. Forecast now at the end of this year will be 3,600. And if you look out 12 months from now, kind of middle of 2021, we're looking around 3,800, 3,800 which will be a return of approximately 12% in price and add uh, around two percentage points of dividends. So around 14% total return looking out for a year. So David, you've explained that the market's come a long way down, a long way back, but very different set of factors. What are investors thinking about now? They've got big variables to think about the potential for a vaccine, the potential action on fiscal policy between now and the election, and then the election itself. How are investors thinking about those variables? So when I speak with the Goldman Sachs biotechnology analysts, and certainly when I'm in uh, conversations with most of the institutional investors, everyone is expecting a vaccine to be identified by October and that a vaccine will be approved by the FDA sometime by the end of this year. And that during the first six months of 2021, first half of next year, a good portion of the U.S. population will have received vaccinations. So that is the expectation 
of most market participants. And in fact, that is one of the baseline assumptions that's being built into the Goldman Sachs economic forecast. And the Goldman Sachs GDP forecast for the United States right now, looking out in 2021, around 6.2%, which is well above the consensus around 3.9%. So much more optimistic GDP forecast, largely or to a, to a meaningful degree, dependent on the vaccine being delivered and being given to so many Americans. And as a result of that, if we think about our earnings forecasts that we have here on the portfolio strategy team, we also have above consensus expectations for profits for next year, driven in part by a faster you know, economic backdrop. Now, our assumption on that is that we have the current tax policy. And as you kind of referenced in your question, there's a red letter day out there, a blue letter day. We'll figure out what day it is on the 3rd of November. And the question is what ultimately may transpire next year in terms of policy. And here for a while, we have been focusing pretty much exclusively or to a large degree on potential tax changes to corporate tax rates. But as the situation has gotten close to the election, it becomes a little less clear whether tax policy will actually change, if it does, immediately under a Democratic-controlled Congress in White House. That may be perhaps delayed until 2022. It may be implemented, may be implemented to a lesser degree. And of course, President Trump may win re-election or the Senate may not go into the Democratic hands. So much more of a fluid dynamic as we look out in terms of our assumptions. So right now, our assumption is that the tax policy will stay unchanged. And in that case, the earnings level is still pretty high. We're seeing reasonable growth in profits for next year after a collapse this year, rally back next year. And so those are the uh, discussions. We're assuming that a vaccine is, there's some positive developments in that front, and that the tax policy right now will stay roughly where it is right now. And there's a trade-off between taxes and also potential infrastructure spending, which could transpire. So those are all the issues that are being debated right now. And clients thinking about how to position portfolios around that. So against that backdrop of uncertainty, or at least some pretty big variables, what companies or what trends should play out and what, what companies will do well in that environment? So if we want to think about the key drivers and the key variables that we're debating with clients or having discussions with clients about, I would say there's really two that are most prominent. The first is the level of rates, the level of interest rates and the second is an economic recovery. And if you think about the rates for a minute, we are at an extraordinary situation. We're basically at the lower bound in terms of the level of interest rate policy. The Federal Reserve has federal funds rates somewhere between zero and 25 basis points. We call that sort of at the lower bound. Uh, expectations are that the Fed funds will be at hold around these levels for multiple years. And in that context, the companies with the best growth prospects actually are the most prized. They're the most valuable companies from a discounted cash flow point of view because the very low interest rate environment means those longer dated cash flows in the future are more valuable today as compared with a higher interest rate environment when they would be less important and the nearer term cash flows would be important. Well, as a result of that, the technology companies are the ones that are most benefiting from this because they have the longest duration, if we call that kind of the time period by which we'll get that cash flow, longest duration and the best growth longer term. So that's an area of big focus for us. And a lot of the discussions, they have certainly done well. And I think they'll continue to do well because the interest rate policy kind of at the lower bound. But as we were mentioning a minute ago, when you asked the question, we we're discussing about the economic recovery, the idea of improved 
economic activity here in the United States and also around the world benefits a lot of industrial companies in particular. And so that would be another area of focus for us. I'd say technology and industrials would be two areas of primary emphasis in terms of discussions that are likely to benefit for those two macro reasons. You know, I would say the third item to think about is uh, utilities, which isn't a sector that gets a lot of uh, focus. It's a relatively smaller uh, sector compared with, with some of the others. But the interest rate policy, interest rates being so low, the dividend yields of these companies, more than 3%, become particularly attractive. They're the widest yield gap you've seen in 25 years. And as a result, Jake, this is an area that's getting a lot of questions from fund managers. In fact, Goldman Sachs just had its virtual utilities conference last week, and attendance was up 30% compared with a year ago. And that gives you some perspective, a lot more investor interest in this area. So David, utilities you know, are back again, and I can understand why with those kind of yields. What industries are facing continued headwinds and exactly why? So the healthcare industry is kind of interesting. It's benefiting because some of the major companies are uh, making important you know, societal contributions by trying to identify and produce, of course, the vaccine. But that is also leading to a concern on the part of many investors. And these stocks have meaningfully underperformed recently. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, traditionally, the healthcare sector, the stocks in the, in the sector have lagged heading into elections irrespective of the party in power, but rather the concern about potential regulation. And in this case, I think it's a legitimate issue because there's been a lot of questions about potential drug pricing legislation, as well as I think a recognition on the part of much of U.S. society of the role, the important role that the government does play in healthcare. And you've seen that in, you know, clearly here in the pandemic playing out. And so I think there's a lot of concern on the part of many investors. That's led to an underperformance of the, uh, the healthcare stocks, I think that's continued to be a, will continue to be a, uh, an issue through the election, at least. It's number one. Number two, the real estate sector has also been very challenged for some obvious reasons, but a number of the retailers uh, are going bankrupt uh, or have been able, have been shutting stores. So if you're a landlord in the shopping center area, it's been difficult in that situation. A lot of office building landlords also facing a situation where tenants are revisiting the uh, footprint that they need. You know, on the other hand, some of the industrial companies with so many people staying at home and the distribution channels actually make some of those real estate assets worth more. And certainly everyone does have to live somewhere. And the apartments are certainly an area of focus. Although with communal living and a pandemic, that also has some, uh, some issues. So I'd say the healthcare sector and real estate would be kind of two areas that are definitely under some pressure. Energy would be a third where oil price is down so dramatically, obviously hurting cash flows and the earnings for those companies. But I'd say those are some of the issues we're focused on right now, Jake. So you've been writing a lot about concentration in the equity market. In particular, we hear a lot about big tech and the record levels of concentration within the index. What risks does that concentration pose to the market? So the concentration is interesting. First, I want to put some of this in context, which is today, a way to think about it is the top five stocks, the five largest companies in the United States comprise 24, 23, 24%, depending on the day, of the equity capitalization of the S&P 500. So nearly a quarter. So put that in context, at the peak of the tech bubble in 2000, 20 years ago, it was around 18% which had the previous peak. Prior to that, you know, it's much, much lower on average. And so this concentration is in fact real in the sense that from a portfolio manager perspective, looking at an index, you know, a quarter of the index is comprised of five companies. 
Well, that raises a couple of issues, kind of two big risks. The first is many mutual funds have a diversification requirement that limits the single stock position to around 5% of the fund's assets. Well, you have five stocks, almost 25% of the assets. You're getting to a practical limit, effective you know, kind of ceiling on how much of a portfolio that some balanced fund managers, for example, could have in a portfolio. So they have to start looking out to other areas. And that has to do with then the breadth of the market. Well, the market breadth is extremely narrow. Way to think about this, the five largest stocks that I'm sort of referencing right now, collectively, those stocks are up 41% year to date. 41% those stocks are up. The other 495 stocks collectively are down 2%. And so the idea of this narrow breadth market led by a few companies that are now pushing up against a limit as to what many mutual fund managers can hold is an issue. And the second issue or concern would be around potential legislation and the antitrust side in particular. So you saw, of course, the congressional hearings that took place a couple of weeks ago. But if we go back and look at some of the precedent, what you see is AT&T, IBM, Microsoft back in the day when it was facing the Department of Justice and the DOJ kind of going after these particular companies two conclusions you realize is that when the DOJ filed some actions against these companies, IBM, AT&T, and Microsoft 20 years ago, the two things that happened were revenue growth slowed dramatically and valuations compressed. And so that would be the risk. The risk is a quarter of the market is you know, at, at potential risk. Now, is that a forecast that you get antitrust legislation? No, uh, that is certainly a risk that's out there and people are talking about it. So it's a kind of a known, known but it's uncertain. And then the question is, you know, how much larger can these companies begin? You get certain other regulations from other countries, obviously, what's going on geopolitically. So those would be some of the issues I would uh, emphasize around the concentrated nature of the U.S. equity market today. Yeah, well, 20 plus years later, Microsoft's back and, and bigger than ever. So somehow they managed to survive. Another trend, and you alluded to this, is just the outperformance of these large cap stocks. Based on your research, do the fundamentals support that outperformance? Well, I would argue that the large cap stock outperformance is supported by the kind of underlying fundamentals. And so we can look back. We just finished, Jake, the second quarter earnings season, just completed that. And what were some of the takeaways? Well, one of the takeaways is that the earnings fell by 34% year over year. So earnings collapsed in the second quarter. No shock there when the US economy was in, uh, in, in frozen situation. Well, small cap stocks, their earnings went down 97%. And so when you look at fundamentally, you know, why is that the case? Well, one of the big issues is the, the, the larger companies, say those in the S&P 500 as a measure, they have more international revenues and they have much stronger balance sheets. And balance sheet strength is sort of the key metric if you look out as to of all the different factors that sort of explain or that had a notable out or underperformance the strongest balance sheet stocks this year have outperformed weaker balance sheet companies by about 30 percentage points, an extraordinary gap. Remember, the, uh, the overall U.S. stock market has come all the way back to its all-time high. But stronger balance sheet stocks have dramatically outperformed and weaker balance sheet stocks have not recovered. And I think it's an interesting you know, observation that if the investor community really believed that the economy was in a healing way and getting better, and a vaccine was on the horizon, things were getting better, then smaller cap stocks should do better. Weaker balance sheet companies should be rallying, but they're not. 
And so that would suggest that investors are still cautious in terms of their overall positioning. And I think that makes sense given the uncertainty on whether it's the election, whether it's the geopolitical situation, whether it's the medical situation. For all these reasons, you know, larger cap stocks likely to do better. And that's why the portfolio we recommend as a strategy has growth in it through technology, benefiting from low interest rates, and has some cyclical benefits from industrials, and then has that yield component with utilities. That's sort of how we think about it. Again, the stock market, remarkably, is 100% all the way back to its all-time high. And looking forward, you get basically earnings is the story. Looking ahead, it's not a valuation recovery from my perspective. All right. So the 3,400, we're back at 3,400, but it's a very different 3,400 with a very different set of underlying assumptions behind it. That's the best summary. Couldn't have said it better myself, Jake. All right. Well, David, thanks for joining us again today. We'll uh, look forward to having you on another period of time and take another look at these issues. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And tune in later this week for our weekly markets update, where leaders around the firm provide a quick take on the latest in markets. This podcast was recorded on Tuesday, August 18th, 2020. Thanks for listening. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.